All of those things could benefit our practice if they were integrated. Where are we at now, medical legally, knowing the outcome of this patient based on the documentation and management that we did initially? Uh, I'd be looking to see if I could get a job in Australia or something. <laughs> Hey, Rick Bicotter, risk management monthly coming to you September 2000 and, uh, what is it, Greg? 2018, Rick. Oh, geez. I promise. Oh, All God. of you guys with Alzheimer's, I got I to get me some younger guys. But this week, we have a great guest, Rick. We've got Mike Weinstock. I remember him as a tad when, I'm got, when I got him going in the med legal business. Uh, now... He's way surpassed me. They don't call any me, me anymore for these talks. They're calling Mike Weinstock. He's organized probably the most famous series in emergency medicine on medical legal cases, and that's the Bounce Back series. Mike, it's been a huge hit. It's been great fun working with you on them, and uh, we thank you for taking your time. Now, before you start, you did a case here a couple of years ago, which had to do with that OB doc speaking against emergency, an emergency physician. I had people find me in hallways wanting to know that OB guy's name so they could hunt him down like a dog. Treat, please try and not have any of those cases today. Uh, I tell you, you rarely see that much uh, spirit and enthusiasm in our listenership, but that case really did it. Do you remember that? V very well. And actually, the backstory of that is that OB doctor had never testified beforehand and never testified again. And I think one of the main sources of his uh, of, of his concern and the reason why he agreed to do that is because he had two daughters, which are almost the exact same age as the patient. And I wonder if he felt like he didn't manage that patient as well as he could have, and then turned that sort of angst towards the emergency physician who actually did a pretty good job in managing the patient. Oh my God. Anyway, uh, great to have you back. And uh, so you. what do you have for us today? Well, before I get into that, you know, I would like to hear a little bit about the evolution of the Bounce Back series, because I think that they're up to uh, edition number nine or something like, like that. Now. <laughs> no, it's, it's so, 27, Rick, but that's okay. So, Mike, <laughs> give us a little background of where we stand on that publication. Well, we have the very first Bounce Back book came out about 10 years ago, and the exciting news is just next week, we will have the 10th anniversary edition with all new references, updated chapters and content, as well as a bonus chapter, and that'll be released towards the very end of August. So that's a pretty exciting thing. And interestingly, that first bounce back book is still more popular than the second medical legal one and the third, which was the pediatric one. So it still sells more copies than the next two combined. The, the other really exciting thing is at the beginning of 2019, we have Bounce Back's Critical Care, and that's going to be myself, Kevin Clower, Scott Weingart, obviously Greg Henry is a big part of that. And the interesting part about this book is that even though we're going to focus a little bit and talk a little bit about that initial visit, it really tries to put the reader in the footsteps of the emergency physician as that patient returns with their critical care event and leads that 
reader through multiple decision points that they need to make using a literature-based approach and a, a mentor-mentee type of type of voice in the book. And it's going to be, to me, the most exciting of these books because it's sort of that evolution that we've sort of learned the things that have worked, and we're going to take that to a whole new level. Well, the case you're going to uh, give us today is from that book that is about to come out, I believe. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's a case that is a pretty scary case because it's a patient that we all see all the time. And the the reason it's even more scary, it's because it's a case that we all become annoyed at all the time. <laughs> and, you know, whenever we are annoyed about a patient, that's always a potential recipe for a disaster. So the chapter in the book is actually written by Rick Pescator and Haney Malamut. And the book itself, obviously, is going to be, you know, author, obviously authored and, and then edited by the, these other authors we talked about. But here's the case. It's a pretty, I should say, seemingly straightforward type of case of a patient who presents with elevated blood pressure. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read the history of present illness, and I'll summarize the rest. This will be like 30, 40 seconds. But I want the listener to hear exactly what was documented on the chart, and this is the actual documentation. So the patient is a very pleasant 53-year-old gentleman with no documented past medical history who presents with complaint of high blood pressure. He reports checking his blood pressure today at a local pharmacy with an automated cuff and became alarmed when it read, quote, over 200. Otherwise, the patient is without complaint. Specifically, he denies abdominal pain, shortness of breath, visual change, or headache. He is well-appearing. So as you go through the rest of the chart, the patient's blood pressure in the emergency department is 202 over 135. His SAT is fine. His temperature is afebrile. His pulse is 86. Respiratory rate is normal. And his exam, which was you know your standard exam, heart, lungs, abdomen, et cetera, back, skin, a very gross neuro exam, cranial nerves, two to 12 grossly intact, was fine. They did an EKG that showed left ventricular hypertrophy, but nothing more than that. And in the medical decision-making note, this is at 9.45 p.m., the physician notes, patient presents with asymptomatic hypertension. There is no evidence of hypertensive emergency, no chest pain, shortness of breath, neurologic deficit. Per ASEP guidelines, no indication for further testing. We'll refer the patient for follow-up with PCP, and they diagnosed the patient is having hypertension. So just to summarize this whole thing, you know, we have a patient with elevated blood pressure. He's concerned and we do a, you know, obviously medical screening and your basic exam. Uh, I'd be very interested because I, without even knowing, without even hearing you guys say anything, I can probably channel what's going on in your brains right now is, you know, even though we're not in the ED at this time, we're still annoyed at hearing this story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, the problem is this. He's not asymptomatic, Mike. He at the pharmacy had his blood pressure taken. Now, there's got to be some reason. I go places every day. I go to the grocery store. I go to the pharmacy. I go here and there where they have these blood pressure machines. I don't take my blood pressure. For some reason, this guy thought he ought to have his blood pressure taken. Now, he takes one that says over 200. We're not talking about the average schmo who's got 160 over uh, 90. Over 200, you can't call him asymptomatic if he took his own blood pressure for some reason. Can we agree on that, that something's bothering him? 
you know, getting to that next level, like you said, is so important because, you know, it's easier for us to write off the patient who presents with a headache for 30 years, but something happened. There was some reason, and maybe it's because they happened to be driving by the ER, they had some extra time in their day, their spouse, significant other said, hey, go get this headache scene. But, you know, what you're doing is based on your experience of trying to get to the next level. Why did this guy get his pressure checked in the first place? Maybe he was having some, you know, chest pressure, but not chest pain. Maybe he'd been having some headaches, you know, maybe he had some numbness in his right arm and leg. I mean, there was something that prompted him to go do this when obviously just out of the blue, he hadn't done this in years and years. I've got a friend who's now asking everybody while they wait to fill out uh, two or three lines. And the question is, what are you most concerned about? I'd like to hear those words out of this guy because, you know, if he's asymptomatic, he's asymptomatic. I honestly believe if we asked more patients, what are you concerned about? We'd figure out why they actually came to the department that day. You know, we can get upset about people who say, well, you know, I've got this here or that there. And then you find out after a little discussion, their brother died with a tumor that started there or something else, but they have an underlying question they want you to answer. Uh, there's no such thing as, as a benign question. Somebody wants to know something. You know, when I spoke at Essentials of Emergency Medicine a few months ago in Las Vegas, the first case that I had was a patient who, I'll tell you the diagnosis, it was compartment syndrome. But what I talked about is the fact that the patient asks a question based on their presentation. And their question sometimes is overt, like, I have a headache, can I have some pain medicine? But sometimes the question is the presentation itself. For example, a 17-year-old who has amenorrhea for two months and left lower pelvic pain, their presentation is asking you, do I have an ectopic pregnancy? And though it might not seem fair or the patient's lying or whatever we might happen to say, it's still incumbent upon us as physicians, as PAs, as NPs to understand not to, well, I should say not only to understand the question the patient's asking, but also make sure that the patient understands that question. Because if we do send them home and they don't even understand the question that was being asked, there's no way that they're going to be able to return if they worsen. I say this all the time, but you know, even though a patient might be inappropriately concerned about something, there's still an opportunity for us to help them. I mean, reassurance is part of healing. So saying, I understand your concern. And I can tell you, you don't have you know, lung cancer with your two-a-day history of cough. Oftentimes, that's our opportunity for healing. It's not sexy. It's not like you know, patient through the windshield 30 feet down the road, MVA type of stuff. But it's still an opportunity for us to heal as clinicians. All right. Carry on. Yes. Yes. So, so um, Rick, I'd be sort of curious. Um, I, I'm sure in your career, uh, you, know, you could probably, I don't know if it'd be triple digit numbers, but at least double digit. Well, I should say, I don't know if it'd be quadruple digit numbers. I'm sure at least triple digit numbers of this exact patient that you've seen usually sent in by the primary care doctor because their blood pressure was too high. <laughs> yeah, it does. Uh, it is a, a common uh, problem, that's for sure. But I must acknowledge that um, this number is a little, little concerning for sure. And I think that 
once a machine says out of range, uh, the 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 red lights are flashing and the sirens are going off. That they're going to go immediately. It probably even said immediately go to the emergency department. That was that little machine, blood pressure machine said you're out of here. Um, so uh, and I agree with Greg. Uh, there must have been some reason that this person uh, took their blood pressure. Although although um, there are a lot of people who just do it out of curiosity, kind of thing, and. Um, the doctor said he was asymptomatic and unless that's incorrect, he was asymptomatic. There were no symptoms. And if there were no symptoms, then we're, then you just have to make the assumption. Maybe there was just a random, uh, check out of curiosity or, or something like that. Or my brother has high blood pressure. I, there's a machine. Nobody's at it. I'm going to go to it. So. I don't think we can really fault this doctor too much for not probing more deeply into that because I don't think, frankly, he'd find very much. In the emergency medicine abstracts in the last uh, three years, we've had at least two pa- two papers where they took people in the emergency department whose blood pressure was elevated. Uh, now, is that white coat hypertension? Is it this? Is it that? Well, when they brought them or sent them to an outpatient center, where theoretically you should be more relaxed and where they take the blood pressure correctly, about half of those people still had some minor elevation of blood pressure. It wasn't 200 over 110 sort of thing, but it was up. I think we sometimes get a little too casual in emergency medicine about the blood pressure and say, ah, they're just concerned about being here in the department. I think it probably is worthwhile, even with minor elevations, to say, you know, on this date, here's your number. You might have a check by your own doc just to see how it's going. Well, actually, I did one study in my entire clinical career. I've done one study when I was a resident at USC, and it was actually to... uh, have blood pressures that were elevated, have the patient come back the following day or the uh, day after that to have a recheck. But the assumption is that, uh, well, maybe the elevation is just due to your anxiety or pain or your, your sprained ankle, whatever it is. And the fact is that half the patients had persistent elevations of their blood pressure. And uh, we take blood pressure in the vast majority of people who have no clinical indication to have their blood pressure taken when they come to the emergency department. I Cut fingers, sprayed eye. ankle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we take a blood pressure, which is a test. And the test, in this case, really has no indications. But once you take the test and find an abnormality, you ha- have now incurred an obligation, uh, which requires a response. And we did an abstract way back in the 70s where they looked at people's blood pressures in the emergency department and they looked at what uh, follow-up or recommendations were made, if there was any acknowledgement at all that the blood pressure was elevated. And oddly enough, the higher and more abnormal the person's blood pressure was, the less likely they were to have any kind of acknowledgement of the blood pressure or, or follow-up. It was inverse, inverse. And so I'm very concerned that when you measure something that you really don't need to measure and you find an abnormality, you've incurred this obligation. So yeah, if they you're say, listening out there, Rick's telling you there's no reason to take a blood pressure on a 16-year-old with a sprained ankle. 
Yeah, and I, and I would wish anybody luck at trying to uh, stop the nurse at triage from actually getting that blood pressure. That's oh, yeah. You know, you know what, what Rick was saying is, is sort of like, uh, you know, when you get that abnormal result, it's sort of like like picking your nose in, in public. You know, if you get a positive result, you got to figure out what you're going to do with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> bringing that back to this case, one of the medical parts that's interesting to me with this case is they did get an abnormal result, but they didn't even check it a second time. So even though it's hard to fault this provider and they did a you know pretty good review systems, no chest pain, shortness of breath, et cetera, it would have been really, really nice. Because if you check it again and it's 240 over 160, well, we're going on a whole different trajectory with this evaluation and management. And if they check it again and it's 140 over 90, then they're following up with a PCP and there's no big rush to do that. The other part that I take this back in a personal sort of level is that when I think back on my career at almost you know 25 years in the emergency department almost i mean probably over 100,000 patients i've seen you know of the patient complaints that i have received and yes uh, no big surprise i have received some but it's for those patients that get sent in by the primary care physician because the physician is concerned the patient is concerned and then i somehow minimize that patient's concern so i have really learn to take this type of patient and to treat them with kid gloves. Like, I'm glad you came in, your blood pressure is elevated. The good news maybe is we don't need to do anything further at this point. And I'm going to talk to your primary care physician. So when I have a PCP, send a patient for elevated blood pressure, 100% of the time I call that PCP so I can tell the patient, hey, listen, we spoke about it. We can, you know, we've arranged it. You're going to either start this medicine or not, or just follow up tomorrow or the next week for a recheck. And since that time, I've not received any complaints or you know any negative feedback on my management of this type of patient. Mike, I, one of I think that's you, excellent. Mike, uh, excuse me. The, one of the things you mentioned that I have a little uh, concern with is, uh, and you only mentioned it casually, and I think it was going to be taken up in greater detail about the idea of of routinely repeating vital signs, and uh, in some emergency departments. It is a matter of policy that might vital signs be repeated, even if they're normal the first time, and you didn't need them the first time, they're going to be repeated again. So that little kid who comes in with a nothing is going to get uh, another temperature taken, and it may be another rectal temperature taken kind of mm -hmm. thing, because we got to have two sets on the, on the chart uh, with no clinical indication whatsoever. So this is, an, I think, an example of kind of overkill. Uh, well, actually, probably not. Kill is probably not the word to use here. But sure, your patient absolutely should have had another set taken. Um, and you're you're right. You know, it probably would have gone down a little or, or, or the like. But I don't want to support a policy where there is this knee-jerk repeating of vital signs that were, not, were probably not indicated in the first place. Yeah, there's a big difference between repeating normal vital signs as a matter of routine and rechecking something that's grossly abnormal like this. So in the same way, I mean, look, you know, we all feel the same way about white blood cell counts, but it'd be the pretty unwise clinician who gets a white blood cell count of 25,000 who says, oh, well, I don't ever look at white blood cell counts. I mean, same way with a white blood cell count of 1.2 or, or whatever it happened to be. That's a very small percentage of the time you'd ever find that. And I don't even check, I mean, I can say this to you guys, even check 
white blood cell counts with the evaluation of right lower quadrant abdominal pain. If I'm getting a CAT scan, why would I check a test that is so far inferior to that CT scan? However, you know, in the same way, this isn't just like a minimally elevated blood pressure. I'm not saying we need to put the patient on some sort of like nicardipine drip, drip right this second, but 202 over 135, you know, I think all of our ears are perked up a little bit and we're sort of saying, hmm, this is not just your, you know, average uh, little elevated blood pressure because of a pain from an ankle sprain or something. Let me, can I let go me tell out? you three mistakes that I see on a regular basis from the children who don't have a lot of clinical experience. Number one, they decide to treat somebody like this with that number with a major medication, sodium nitroprusside or whatever you want to give through the vein in an asymptomatic patient is rarely indicated. I think that if you want to lower their blood pressure a little bit, you can do it a little bit. But, you know, looking at all the literature, I would rather you drop it 10 or 15 or 20 percent then try and normalize those numbers. Your body has gotten used to a certain head of pressure. The last thing I want is precipitation of a stroke because you've suddenly dropped the blood pressure to quote-unquote normal numbers. Uh, normal has to be taken into account with the entire patient and how they're presenting. Be very careful of that. The second thing is, it is easy to pick up the phone and call their doc. And if the doc's going to start them on something, I don't mind recording that on the chart. Spoke to Dr. So-and-so. We'll put him on uh, hydrochlorothiazide one a day, and he'll see him in three days or four days. That's what you ought to do. And you're right. The patient feels like you took him seriously if you talked to the, to the doctor. The, sort of the last mistake is going crazy in front of the patient about their blood pressure. Uh, they're already upset. You know, talking about the fact that we're going to bring it down some lets them know that you're interested and you're going to do it, but you don't want to convey some sort of sense of immediate urgency when it's not that kind of situation. I understand in a 30-year-old woman uh, who's had a seizure and is nine months pregnant uh, and had his edema at his feet, yes, that's a different kind of case. Uh, this guy isn't quite that case. So can, do you guys mind, I'm just going to ask you a, a question here, and I don't even want you to give me like a specific answer, but just like a yes or no. And, and I'd ask you this first, Rick, and it, and it gets to the next interesting point about this case is if I ask you to list for me the PERC criteria, you know, for rolling out PE, if I ask you to, to, to tell me specifically from the article what the PERC criteria are, like, do you have confidence that you know them well enough to just list them? here in front of a national audience? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. Of course not. You, and, and Greg, was a, I'm guessing was a, you're feeling the same way, right? Yeah. Who, does a, he, who do you think he is, uh, Diane Birnbomber? I mean, come on, right. give me a break here. And, and so, and so the, 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 the reason I asked that question is because I've asked that in lectures before and nobody raises their hand. I mean, everyone has a really good idea of what those are. 
you know, you're not hypoxemic or tachycardic to Kipnik and you, you don't have like, you know, pain or swelling in your leg or hyster thromboembolic and all these things, right? So we, we have a good idea of what those are. But to actually be able to say in your note, the patient is perk negative, well, maybe you have some sort of decision rule on your computer in your EMR, or maybe you have that through MD calc and you've done it that way. And in that case, it's fine. But this physician documented, I'm just going to read this part again for, for the listener here. They say in the medical decision-making note, there is no um, hypertensive emergency per ASAP guidelines, no indication for further testing. So, you know, putting that type of thing in your note, because the ASAP policy statement on asymptomatic elevated blood pressure, I mean, it's like eight or 10 pages long, you know? So unless this physician sort of wrote that policy statement, I'm guessing that they, I mean, what are the chances they've read this thing in the last like week or month and, and know every single machination of that, of that policy statement? One of the problems with that policy statement is that when you try to distill it eight pages down, it is generally don't get excited about asymptomatic hypertension. Uh, and don't even necessarily treat it. So I think that that is kind of the take home, but all of the uh, um, exceptions and the uh, qualifications are are gone. And that's where the danger is. So, so Greg, let me, let me ask you from the, the courtroom legal side of things, what happens if you quote something like a policy statement, for example, in your note, and then it turns out that you're incorrect. I mean, how does that play out? Have you have you seen that play out in a oh, deposition or at a trial? Multiple times. I've seen and I've seen them ask doctors specifically, doctor, here's I've got I'm holding in front of me what you say you've done. Let's go through it. Would you like to start naming things and they can't do it? It does happen all the time. Be very careful. Uh, by the way, if you're in court, and you have to comment, it, it's, it's good to say, yes, you know, I look at my PERC score before I, uh, you know, or as I'm doing it, I check it off because none of us have perfect memories. You know, as many times as the average professional airline pilot has taken off a 747, he has to go through the interlock answer each question each time uh i guess unless you're in seattle <laughs> where they somebody <laughs> took a plane last week yes. but uh but uh, they don't depend on memory in the airline business they actually have to check them off one at a time and if they miss one the plane won't take off um i think that's a good system Greg, I got to update you a little bit. Um, there are no longer any 747s being flown commercially by U.S. airlines. The last one was retired about six months ago. Well, you should have been retired six months ago <laughs> along with that 747, but you weren't. It was a sad day. It was a sad day. All right, okay. let's move on. Okay, so, so that should be one of our really big teaching points here is that you don't document a policy statement or a decision rule that you aren't 100% sure is correct. Because if it does come to something later, like a trial, you can always quote it at that time. So what's the point of putting it up front here when you possibly are incorrect? So, so let's get to our next interesting, I think, point here. And 
when we're thinking about a rare event, and I'll just give an example of this. So for example, I have a patient who is um, having right lower quadrant pain. It's a young adult patient, and it's been going on for eight hours, just for example. Well, there's a study by a guy named Bickle, American Journal uh, of Surgery, and they looked at the time from onset of symptoms to rupture, and they found that it was 36 hours where you had 2% risk of rupture, okay? So um, I don't wait for 36 hours in any way, shape, or form, but for a patient that has pain for eight hours with some maybe equivocal exam findings, they're afebrile, they're not vomiting, it seems unlikely, maybe they've had pain in the past or something. To me, it seems very acceptable to have that patient follow up and for example, eight or 12 hours, you know, well within that 36 when you'd be worried about even a 2% risk of rupture. And obviously probably the risk is way less. So the reason I, I, I quote that study is because any patient that has elevated blood pressure and asymptomatic elevated blood pressure, well, you know, there are certain things that we need to watch for. That wasn't really clearly spelled out. I'd just be curious how you guys would document the follow-up instructions. Would you say return for, you know, headache or chest pain or make sure based on, you know, what we spoke about at the very beginning that the patient understands the question that their clinical presentation is asking? How, how would you guys document the discharge instructions and where would you put that in your medical decision-making note? Well, assuming that uh, you have decided to treat or not treat, you or and maybe you've gotten help by calling a, another physician who's going to do follow-up or potentially do follow-up, because the assumption is that this fellow doesn't have a doctor. But there are primary care doctors on call in your emergency department, and that that doctor could be called and said, this advised that you've got this patient. You'd like to send them to the office uh, yeah, in the in the next day or two, uh, at the at the most, kind of thing, uh, and that you've collaborated on the decision to give medication. You know, I, I have a bias about starting medication, but uh, but I know others don't. But but bottom line is is I don't think you can just let this guy go loose for sure uh, with follow up with your doctor. And certainly you can't say come back if your symptoms. Um, uh, persist when he has no symptoms at all, supposedly. So I think that that's a very dangerous part of this visit is um, the follow-up, which we all understand is so important in these cases. What do you think, Greg? Yeah, I, I think that uh, Rick's points are well taken. I think that uh, the, the major sin that you can commit is not to let the patient know, not let them in on the fact that they do have some measure of hypertension. We are going to follow it. There are things you should do. Certainly at this level, I think calling the uh, calling someone, and if they don't have a doctor, getting them someone. And if they don't have a doctor, you can't get someone, bring them back to the emergency department mm-hmm. right. uh, in, in a couple of days. I mean, we... A patient never walks into the desert. They can always come back and see me. Now, I know a lot of people don't think that's a good thing, <laughs> but but it's better than nothing in general. Uh, and though I don't like to list, particularly with something like hypertension, a list of things because you'll miss something. If you're worse in any way, any shape, in any way, at any time, come back here, you know. Hi, we're we're open 24 hours a day. Uh, we're full service here. 
Well, you're, Greg, you're talking about worse. I think that uh, in this case, not better, right? There would be something like new or uh, something's going on that is not there now. Right, correct. Because if you believe the guy, there's nothing going on now. Yeah, I, uh, although it's very hard for me to swallow that completely, I, I think you're right, Rick, that if anything comes up, we'll see you back. I mean, there there is a limit. I know Americans don't believe in that, but most people like this, we would not admit. If that examination was a clean exam, if I could find them follow-up and open their mouth and put a tablet in it, we wouldn't bring that person into the hospital. Uh, and I don't think there's any evidence that, uh, that we do them any harm. Uh, let's say he came upstairs and went to bed. Uh, he might have the exact same outcome he had in this case. Uh, it's not it's not a given that admission uh, saves lives. It depends what they do when they admit people and the symptoms the patient has. So so before we find the follow-up, let me just read the ASAP position statement from those very guidelines. So the 2013 guidelines of management with patients with asymptomatic elevated blood pressure. And the very first question that they asked of the critical questions that's answered with this ASAP policy statement, they say, in ED patients with asymptomatic elevated blood pressure, does screening for target organ injury reduce rates of adverse outcomes? So number one, they say, in ED patients with asymptomatic elevated blood pressure, routine routine screening for acute target organ injury, for example, serum creatinine, urinalysis, EKG, is not required. But number two, right underneath it, they say, in select patient populations with poor follow-up, Screening for an elevated serum creatinine level may identify kidney injury that affects disposition, i.e. hospital admission. So, you know, it seems that the provider that was caring for this patient read the first part of that policy statement and just sort of stopped there. Now, we might agree or disagree with the policy statement. However, certainly the quotation within the record was inaccurate as to the content of that policy statement. Well, I think one of the other problems that's wrong with or, or problematic with the policy statement is uh, they make no attempt, and I can understand why, to quantify numbers. I mean, there are going to be numbers where um, screening is indicated even though the person appears to be asymptomatic. And so it's different. 160 over 90 is different than uh, 220 over, uh, you know, 100. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, so let's find out what happened with the uh, the patient here. So, the patient was discharged. Um, did not initiate follow up. In other words, he didn't call a primary care physician to you know call that number at the bottom of his uh, twenty five page paperless EMR instruction, a uh, set of discharge instructions. Um, and then the morning after the ED discharge, um, uh, he started uh, complaining of a headache, uh, had some episodes of vomiting and then began seizing in a downstairs bathroom. Uh, EMS was activated. They arrived to find the patient with persistent seizures. So arrives back, actually it's the next night. So about 24 hours after their initial ED presentation, 11.02 PM patient is a 53 year old male, um, no known history of seizure disorder. They summarized the obviously first visit and then they weren't able to get any history from the patient. They do know that EMS had given the patient two milligrams of IV lorazepam. The blood pressure at this time is 224 over 140 uh, with a heart rate of 126. 
the patient, you know, looks looks very bad, of course. Um, and they, they document a note uh, with seizures, hypertension, and that recent complaint of headache. They're concerned now about a subarachnoid hemorrhage. So the way that we progress at this point with this patient, I mean, um, we don't really need to go into the medicine itself that much. We can a little bit if we'd like to, but where are we at now medical legally knowing the outcome of this patient based on the documentation and management that we did initially? What do you think, Greg? Uh, I'd be looking to see if I could get a job in Australia or something. <laughs> I mean, it's it's got its own problems here, but um, what you have to say now is was in with hypertension, untreated, now has all the end organ signs of the damage of hypertension. It's very, it would be very unusual for this to be a sudden onset in this guy. I can't picture that the two days before he took his own blood pressure, it was normal. Then he has an elevated blood pressure, and now he goes on to this. This has probably been kicking around for a while. So, so what you've really got to do is uh, decide three things. What am I going to do for protection of the end organs, his brain, his heart, that sort of thing? What number do I want to go to with my bringing down the blood pressure? And again, I warn you, do not think you have to normalize blood pressure, maybe backing it down 15, 20%, being able to do the cardiac workup. You're going to send this guy seizing. He's going to go and get a CT because the question is, has he bled? Uh, is there something else going on? Does he have a tumor? Uh, there, there's several other things you're going to do with this patient, but, uh, I drop his blood pressure back a little bit and proceed with the end organ workup. Well, I want to highlight what you said even earlier in this discussion was the fact that the blood pressure doesn't need to come down to 120 over 80. Of course, we all know this, but here's what happened with the patient. And unfortunately, uh, they did overcorrect a bit. So when the patient got there, they received a second two milligrams of IV lorazepam. The patient also had um, Kepra ordered. The patient was intubated. They used 20 milligrams of atominate, 100 of sucks, 80 endotracheal tube, and then they sent the patient for a CT scan of the brain. The CT actually came back negative, so there's no bleeding or any evidence of subarachnoid hemorrhage. And you know whether you believe it or not, but you know within this period of time, at least the Perry study shows that in their patients, they had within six hours a 100% rate of of capture for subarachnoid hemorrhage. But what happened then is the patient was started on a nicardipine drip for management of their blood pressure. Went from, remember the initial blood pressure, 224 over 140 within, well, took a couple hours actually even to get to um, a minimally lower level, 228 over 126. However, Maybe the rate got turned up or, or something happened, but the patient eventually did go to, you know, almost <laughs> that number we talked about before, 119 over 68. Oh, wow. Um, and so, unfortunately, uh, at that point, another decision ne needed to be made. Uh, the, the medication, the nicardipine, was stopped. Uh, I believe the patient was given um, some IV fluids, 
and his blood pressure did eventually increase back to 160 over 90. When he was admitted, he had an MRI scan, and it showed uh, restricted diffusion of the bilateral frontoparietal region consistent with the watershed infarction, as well as showing subcortical vasogenic edema, bilateral parietal occipital region consistent with Press syndrome. So in the end, this patient really did have a true hypertensive emergency. And, you know, care was well done. It was well done with the intubation, with the benzodiazepines. Unfortunately, that's a simple thing of the blood pressure overshooting with this patient resulted in this watershed infarction. I'm sure you guys remember the days of puncturing a nifedipine tablet and squirting the liquid under a patient's tongue for that asymptomatic elevated blood pressure. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we well, we put one under the patient's tongue and one under ours <laughs> because because we were very whenever we did that, we were concerned about what was going on and it it took all of us a little while to get into this idea that you know, 10, 15, 20, 25% down, it's probably all right. And uh, be be careful what you do um, on the good side. You're right. If he'd started out with a blood pressure of 120 over 80, great. But he hasn't seen that for 30 years. And uh, either has the perfusion of his brain or his heart or his kidneys. So you can do harm. The sublingual nifedipine got to be such a common practice. Um, Everybody was doing it. It was easy. It was kind of cool. And um, then the cases started coming out of the, this problem, that problem uh, due to a, a, a magnitude of blood pressure change, which was certainly unanticipated. You had no control over the medication in terms of where it was going to go. And um, that went out of fashion pretty quickly uh, after these cases came up. So this patient, unfortunately, I'll tell you that the eventual outcome with this patient is that he, as we know, was admitted to the hospital um, and he unfortunately never recovered. He um, had a depressed mental status. Um, he underwent a trach and a peg placement and then was transferred to a long-term acute care facility for prolonged vent management. So, you know, here's the guy who is 53 years old and he comes in for this asymptomatic elevated blood pressure. So just summarizing some of our opportunities. And I like this case because it was standard of care. I really believe that this was standard of care. However, it wasn't excellence in care. And I think we could agree that there were some opportunities for improvement. One would be by rechecking the blood pressure. One would be by what we talked about in the beginning, exploring why the patient came in the first place after all these years for asymptomatic elevated blood pressure. Maybe asking that simple question, what's your main concern? You know, that could have gotten to the bottom of something specific going on. Uh, the third thing is really in deviating from the ASAP policy statement, not that we're all practicing only exclusively based on these policy statements, but, you know, this patient had a um, had an inability to, to appropriately follow up. We know that these patients oftentimes have problems. And in fact, when he did come back, his Creatinine was 4.8. Uh, he was hyperkalemic with a potassium of 6.3, probably because of the renal failure. And this 
renal failure probably was not new based on the fact that he'd been having a seizure for 30 minutes or so. Probably this is a long-standing thing. And if we had checked the patient's blood pressure, we could have known about that. So if we have appropriate follow-up, that's fine. Um, and I know we talked about it already, but and just to even say one more time, at the risk of like sounding like a broken record, you know, you got that grossly abnormal result, just recheck the blood pressure. I mean, that's a simple, easy thing to do. What 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 other things do you guys I mean, Rick, what do you what do you take away as far as you know opportunities from from this case? Well, you know, one of the things I saw in your Note is that this fellow was discharged within 30 minutes of arrival. Right. And <laughs> Good throughput. Like, hey, I, you know. <laughs> I think throughput is, a, is really one of the major concerns in the emergency department, but it's not because it's too fast. Right. This guy basically was um, uh, given a little short shrift here, I think, in terms of there's no question in my mind that a, a repeat blood pressure should have been taken. And um, and that would require that you give him some opportunity to rest and sit here and uh, I'll be back in a little bit and kind of thing so that we're uh, trying to optimize getting that number where we'd like it to be. And if that number turns out not to be where we'd like it to be, then again, we are obligated to act, not necessarily to treat, but to act. And in this case, a, a bona fide uh, follow-up, not something where here's the list of doctors, give them a call in the morning kind of thing. But in fact, you've arranged it because you're a little, little, uh, concerned about this person. Um, I don't think most of us would be particularly cavalier about, you know, patients who are having blood pressures over the two hundreds and, um, and one thirties at all. So I think that that was kind of like the first visit opportunity that was, that was kind of bungled. And I, you know, I don't know that there was any really predicting that in such a short period of time, there would be such a catastrophic, um, uh, worsening because it, I, I was pretty much sure that this is going to be a subarachnoid hemorrhage because that would be the only thing I could think of that could in such a short time cause all of these problems rather than this is that the gradual progression of this, this chronic blood pressure elevation that doesn't sound too logical either. Yep. I, I think that uh, I can warn this emergency physician, that was a day he should not have bought a lottery ticket as well. <laughs> uh, because, <laughs> because sometimes poo-poo occurs uh, to move from an asymptomatic guy to be unconscious. Um, you wouldn't think that would be happening over 24 hours. You really wouldn't. Most right. people do have some other symptoms. They do have some renal failure. They, they do have some um, headache and, and intracranial hypertension and a few other things that might have ticked these things off. And I, I you know, I'm not going to get on my bandwagon of, of proper physical examination because I, I'm I'm a, a voice crying in the wilderness here. But uh, you know, I'd be interested. This guy have uh, venous pulsations in his eyes. What? Uh, yeah, yeah, Rick, <laughs> Rick. <laughs> He's the man seizing for crying out loud. <laughs> no, 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 no. On his first visit. Because I can't picture he had normal venous pulsations, and then in a few hours later, he's got such a rise in intracranial pressure that he's seizing. I mean, that to me seems bizarre. Many, yeah. many, many years ago, there was a paper 
uh, tracking the outcomes of people who had substantially elevated blood pressures uh, to determine, you know, uh, if you don't treat them, if you leave them, uh, wh what was the time frame by which something nasty would happen? And it was, and I think they followed them something like three or four months for down the road. And Jerry Hoffman quotes this paper all the time. Right. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. It was the, the, the conclusion was it would be more dangerous to treat aggressively than to just leave them a, a, alone. Um, but so I think the we'd idea all, that, well, we'd the all idea that, that over time, that, that, you know, and, over time, people do have do worse with with significant elevated blood pressure, but it's not in the day or the week. Yeah, that's the whole point. That's yeah. the whole point that uh, there is this lack of true urgency, despite numbers which are a little bit uh, alarming. Um, the whole point of this paper was to uh, make it clear to you that this has been going on for a long time and it's going to go continue for a long time before there are any manifestations of an acute emergency. Well, since this is Risk Management Monthly and we focus on the legal part, um, let me ask each of you in turn. I I'd be interested, I have my own thoughts on this, uh, which are, of course, just a guess like anybody's. But, Greg, two questions. Would this case ever go to trial? And if it did, what would you predict would be the outcome? Well, the outcome would be the attorney would be charged with medical malfeasance for taking it to trial. <laughs> I, 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 I think considering everything here, a settlement should be reached. Um, it, you know, some, some reasonable, and, and this is a, this is a disaster. Now you've got a guy, if he's dead, that's pretty simple to cap the loss, but this guy's on a ventilator uh, somebody's paying for this. Uh, and I think that, uh, this is a, uh, this is a terrible case. This is a bad case, no matter how you look at it. I would prefer not to defend the emergency physician in this case, if I could avoid it. Wow. So if they ask you to be a defense expert, you would say, I mean, obviously there are problems with the case. Yes. Um, you would turn this down, huh? Yes, I would. Wow. Interesting. I, I, what, what do you think, Rick? Well, you know, it's one of those things where there's an overwhelmingly bad outcome and it would be very, very difficult for a jury not to connect the dots here and say, uh, they, they had to have done something wrong, whether it had been inadequate, uh, care by the first doctor in terms of, uh, uh, follow up, uh, or repeating, or the fact that they plummeted his blood pressure down at the second visit, um, whether in that fact really had the, the, this is not a good case to go to trial. I agree with Greg. I think people are going to lose money here. Uh, the question is, was the first doctor, how culpable was that first doctor? Well, if you're going to offend anybody, you, you know, uh, you, you can probably try to defend that doctor. Uh, the, yes. Uh, Mike, you pointed out a lot of the mistakes that were made, but were these mistakes such that they would be viewed as malpractice? Uh, I, I really don't think so. Yeah. I'm going to take a little of the contrary and sort of part of it that, and as I said before, it was not excellence in care. I mean, it was definitely not excellence in care, but was it standard of care? I mean, you know, except for that 
quotation of the ASAP policy statement, which was clearly incorrect. And besides that, it was a little bit, I mean, well, a lot higher probably than some of our asymptomatic elevated blood pressures. But I mean, we send these folks routinely home all the time with 200 over 110. Maybe they've had that in the past. Maybe you check it or something. It was definitely higher than that. I just feel like this first doctor, I just don't know that they deserve to lose a, a case on this. Again, it could have been done better without a doubt. Um, and I'm just thinking purely of the first doctor, not the second one that, that caused the worsening because of the watershed stuff. But I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I'm glad I wasn't the doctor, like Greg said, and that yeah. I didn't die, buy a lottery ticket that day. <laughs> right, exactly, because you'd have, lost, you, you'd have thrown your money away that day. Um, I, I think that uh, they're going to, if you're a uh, competent plaintiff's attorney, you're going to get the first doctor fighting with the second doctor. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I let him go home, but I didn't drop his blood pressure to uh, 119 over uh, uh, 70 and uh, cut off any supply he had to his brain because that's what actually did the harm in this case. Um, And you never like to have two doctors pissing on each other on the stand because all you do is attack a zero onto the number. It's, uh, It's uncomfortable for all parties. Well, there are some nuances here uh, that, you know, an initial CT is really looking for blood and we didn't find any blood, but that doesn't mean that this person is not having a hypertensive encephalopathy. Exactly. Uh, roaring. And when this MRI was done, you know, things by that time, things have settled down. The prison's not seizing anymore. You, you, you can, you can see the damage that was cr- created or, or infer the damage that was created by the hypotensive episode. But um, initially, you know, the uh, we don't really know the diagnosis, and, and the CT didn't really help us. I I, I, uh, I have I've one f- thought on, ba- on what you said, and, and then if you guys would like to, I have, I have a couple other things that would be interesting to talk about, which also will get your blood equally boiling. Obviously, not this case, but a, a paper that recently came out. We can talk about it in a sec if you'd like to. But this. Um, this case sort of gets my good a little bit. And I said that, you know, again, maybe standard, but not excellence in care. But, you know, I have this thing that you should do a physical exam based on the presenting complaint, i.e., if a patient has abdominal pain, I mean, who amongst us would not actually push on the abdomen, right? You know, I mean, right. if a patient has like shortness of breath or cough, I mean, you got to listen to the lungs, you know? Well, this patient had a seemingly neurologic complaint, which was the elevated blood pressure. I mean, if you think of any specific system that it would be, certainly the neurologic system would be one of those things. And I'm cool to listen to the lungs. I'm cool to listen to the heart for, you know, you know, S3, S4 or whatever it might things that you might find on that. But the neuro exam says two to 12, cranial nerve two to 12, grossly normal. Well, you know, it's fine to put soft and non-tender on your abdominal pain when you come in with an ankle strain. But when you come with right lower quadrant pain, soft and non-tender just doesn't cut it. In the same way, when you have a blood pressure diastolic 135, you need to have, and it still could be your 25-second neuro exam, but you need to have a real neuro exam with evaluation of cerebellar function, et cetera, that's on the chart beyond just, you know, two to 12 with the normal limits. And, and, and Greg, I can already, you know, paraphrase what you're going to say. <laughs> 
I, I and, and the listener probably can also. <laughs> it's my custom in practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah yes. Well, well, no, I was going to say that you know they didn't check visual acuity, which is two. So you know, in addition to the fact that they put this minimal neuro exam on, it, it was also a lie. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, when I teach the physical examination and recording of it, I, uh, I tell them that I think uh, two through 12 intact is the coward's way out because you never test all the various functions of the cranial nerves. It's fine to write down what you do test. Uh, you, you may test the motor division of this nerve or the sensory division of another, but it's rare that we do all of them. And we should just be honest. I've seen doctors destroyed on the stand by those questions. And uh, it can be it, it can be ugly. I, pro I promise you that. Well, you know, the idea of 2212 uh, intact is basically code for saying <laughs> this person, as best as I can determine, is this fine. You know, we watch how they walk. We watch how they talk. We watch the coordination of their extremities. You cannot not observe those things in dealing with a person. Even a layman would say, well, he's not moving his right arm very well kind of thing, or, he's, or he complains of it. So I think that um, it is code for, as far as I could tell, this guy was fine. And I don't necessarily agree that an asymptomatic person needs this uh, ultra-fine neurologic exam when, in fact, we're, we're really looking for pretty gross things um, in a person who says, I have no symptoms. Now, well, actually, a different story to say, if I have some symptoms, I, I, then I'm going to try to narrow it down and, and, and find out. So maybe there's a better code than saying 2 through 12 um, that we could come up with, which would incorporate things like, you know, cellular barrier function and, 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 and coordination and speech and all of those other very much more important things than the cranial nerves, frankly. Yeah, well, uh, they all interact you know, that's why there's a hints exam. But uh, uh, bottom line here is uh, uh, having hypertension is not a complaint. Hypertension is a finding. It's not a complaint. If, but what you know is the doctor is he said, well, I got a blood pressure over 200. You've interpreted that to say, here are the three uh, systems which are most influence the neurosystem, the heart, and the kidneys. Well, you know, honestly, Greg, the, the neurosystem is the one that is the most apparent. You don't need any blood tests for the neurosystem. Right. You don't need an EKG for the neurosystem. You don't need a creatinine for the neurosystem. The neurosystem is, is a mirror that is so apparent. Yeah, it should be. There's no question about it. And that's why we should we should teach people efficiently how to look at that. Um, I, I wish he had done that, but um, you know these things happen. And also, Greg, you have used in the past this phrase: "It is my custom and practice." And right. the, this doctor could have said his speech was clear and appropriate. I saw him walk into the room; everything right. was 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 normal. I didn't put down every one of those things as normal, and frankly, I should not have put down two to 12 because it was, it, it, but it is code for everything was normal. Yeah. I think that, uh, I think you're right, which means they ought to take my, uh, course at, uh, ASAP in, 
in uh, September, or let's see, early October in San Diego. We, and we're going to talk about these kinds of mistakes on the charts and in court. Well, speaking of the charts, are you guys interested in discussing a article which just came out, which I, I had predicted, and I think I'm accurate in saying that will, will result in some lively discussion? <laughs> sure. Please, I should tell you, though, uh, we have uh, pace on the clock about 15 minutes. So okay. let's, let's pace ourselves. Yes, Got but it. I'm always interested in articles. Okay, so this is an article by Sonny Lin, and I guess until you actually hear the article, and, and there was no uh, pre-article preparation, I will tell the listener, <laughs> but until you see the article, we'll see if you're still actually interested in, in discussing it, uh, knowing some of your uh, uh, statements in the past. But anyways, this is by uh, Sonny Lin, electronic health records associated with lower hospital mortality after systems have time to mature. This is from Health Affairs 2018, actually just came out. And what their findings are when they looked at EMRs over a five-year period of time from 2008 to 2013, and they looked at 30-day death rates in patients age 65 and older, they looked at over 3,000 hospitals, and they found that after integration, and again, these pre-post things are always potentially problematic, but they found that after integration, there was a small but a statistically significant decrease in the mortality rate after integration of a EMR. And the percentage was? Well, the percentage was... Um, like 3%? A, oh, God, no. It was like 0.1. Yeah, 0.1. So then... yeah. So I guess the issues are, uh, this is an association at best. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Point, yep. point one, uh, may, uh, be a statistically significant difference because the number of people that they looked at was so huge. When you have such a large number, small, uh, changes become statistically significant. But, but the issue here is, um, there's also a five-year time span, uh, taking place in which there are other things that are transpiring in medicine that may be uh, attributable to this uh, benefit as well. So Jerry Hoffman would have a great time with this paper. Oh, uh, he, he'd, he'd slap you right around, right across the face. For example, you take a 30 day time interval. Why don't you take a 60 day time interval? Well, maybe if they took the 60 day, any benefit would have been lost. Um, how about how about somebody who the number of people who go on to their 100th birthday functioning, staying at home in their own house? I mean, before we make a decision that the medical record has now increased the number of 80 year olds in in uh, Dancing with the Stars, right? I, I I think we think there's other questions you have to ask. It's it's like some of these. Uh, excuse my French bullshit papers about epinephrine in the field. I mean, there's a, a new wave of people saying, oh, two more people got there. We got a pulse back. No, I want to know who pays taxes next year. Uh, that's a save. You know, when you're, when you're laying on a ventilator, that's not a save. And uh, so you can set up any straw man you like why they pick 30 days, I have no idea. Well, you know, the other thing about 30 days is it suggests that people who die or don't die within 30 days were probably 
pretty sick in the hospital. They were not in there for uh, a diverticulitis episode kind of thing. I think 30 days is a, a unreasonably short period of time. And I, obviously, you know, Greg and I and, and, uh, and Mike, you probably are well uh, prejudiced and biased against electronic medical records in terms of 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 everything they do, ex- uh, uh, everything they do being positive and in fact there's a fair amount of net negative and that this doesn't apply to the emergency department where they're in the average emergency department before they're admitted for four hours and what could possibly uh, affect their outcome when you have a four-hour ER stay or five-hour ER stay before you're admitted for three or four or five days where they have a lot of time to screw you up. I haven't looked at the data yet but I'm sure that the uh, level five collections on those patients who had an electronic medical record were higher uh, than those who did not have an electronic medical record. I mean, I think what, what people need to deal with is the fact that a lot of what we say and do to each other in medicine is just crap. As Rick says, it's code. Um, We could have said it a lot shorter, a lot better and been more truthful. Uh, when I see these three-page histories and physicals, you know, on cough, uh, there's got to be there's got to be some reason why we do that, and unfortunately, it's called upcoding. It's moving them from a level three to a level five, and yet again, it, it's like when you look at radiology. You know, we we do so many more CT scans. The only thing we've proved for sure is we've increased the ability of radiologists to buy condominiums in Florida. I'm not <laughs> sure we've always increased, uh, improved the health care of people. But Mike, how do you feel about this paper? So I am pretty much where you guys, when I started, it was all paper charts. We could never find the page where the nurse had recorded the vitals because it was always back in the break room that they're sort of catching up on their charting. You know, trying to put all these things together. I'm sure you guys remember the days of, you know, some lowly tech at 3 a.m., you know, coming down with a, a big stack of charts when you request the old records and you had these like, you know, 20 stacks, charts, you know, st- charts stacked on top of each other next to you. I like the AMR because I can find the information after, obviously, you learn about your AMR. You can usually find the information that you want. The problem is, is that sometimes there's so much information there that you can't find the important information that you want or that you need. So, you know, the nurse documents something. And you might never know that because you haven't rechecked or maybe it's in the middle of the encounter. And if there's not that verbal communication. So what I think about the EMR is that it's good, but only if you use it in conjunction with face-to-face communication. I've had patients that come in and, you know, uh, by squad with critical care, you know, hypotension, like all the different things. And you put orders in the chart. And 30 minutes later, they're not done. And it turns out the nurse was next door writing in a different squad from a nursing home patient on 16 medications. Well, you know, you have to realize that just by virtue of the fact that you put an order in an EMR doesn't help the patient at all until that order is actually carried out. The other thing is once you get something in an EMR, it's there forever until someone goes ahead and really checks to see what's going on. Uh, And I've seen all kinds of bad information. And the truth is the way you, the way you confuse anyone is not too little information, too much 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and when these when these uh, records ju- just repeat themselves endlessly, I think it's very difficult to focus on the important uh, material. I, I had a great attending once who, who said to me, tell me three things about this patient. That's it. Because, you know, first of all, he had the same view of morning rounds on medicine that I did, which was <laughs> they sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, pretty soon you're reading the front of the the patient's uh, star magazine. You're, you're waiting for your beeper to go off. You're doing whatever you can do. Too much information is just as deadly as too little, uh, no matter how much it increases your billing. I believe yeah, that uh, yeah. the EHRs are basically in, in, in relatively uh, adolescent pays. Not they're in, in the emphasis anymore, but they're adolescent. They've got a lot uh, of opportunity to get better over time. So I, I'm not kind of the needless that I once was. But I think that uh, things like decision support integrated into a medical records, which would allow you to know exactly what the perk rules would allow you to know the heart rules and which would allow for, you know, more definitive evidence, evidence-based care, uh, the pioped rules for doing, you know, uh, getting a, a, a CTA for a, a, um, a PE suspected, all of those things, uh, could benefit our practice, uh, if they were integrated. And I think that to the extent that they're not, they basically are, are a big way to consolidate a bunch of, of prior records, but I think that they can substantially improve care if they help us make decisions. How much time do we have, Rick? Oh, uh, we got about uh, three or four or five minutes. Let me give you one letter, which is uh, sent in. Yeah, you know, we get some of the greatest uh, emails from our listeners. Um, and, uh, Greg and Rick and Mike, since you're on today, I want your input on this. We got to charge you something. Uh, I hope you're all well. I want to share with you a short article from one of my health law journals. Now this listener, and I haven't gotten permission to use his name yet, is both a doctor and a lawyer. Uh, and he talks about the expanding role and questions about supervision he says South Carolina is this month to allow NPs to practice with the same broad capabilities as family practitioners uh, and those people who are boarded in family medicine. The supervising doc will be able to expand their oversight, not not to three NPs as it is now, not four, not five, but six NPs. So basically, they say that the doc can oversee six NPs simultaneously. This, to him, sounds like a pretty risky proposition. What's supervision? What does it mean? What should you be doing? And the ultimate of this is if if he can supervise six NPs, why do they need anybody there at all? Well, the fact of the matter is our friend who wrote that is really... Uh, unfortunately, a little bit behind the times. There are 22 states now that have allowed autonomous practice of nurse practitioners. They can go, and three or four of them can set up their own urgent care centers, and there Without is no, 
with yeah. absolutely with no observ uh, uh, obligation to have a relationship with a physician. So this guy's complaining that, oh my God, they've gone from three to six. There's lots of states now, and this this move to autonomous practice, uh, there's no turning the ship around. And now our PA colleagues are going in the same route because they basically don't want to get left behind. So everybody's getting a, P, uh, a doctorate now. Uh, the, all the NP schools are getting doctorates. They're approaching the nursing board and saying, listen, let us do this. The nursing board says, okay. The, the legislature is just approached. And then they said, we have no primary care doctors left. Please, how, how we can help. And this is being, um, this is a train that's left the station, man. Yeah. Well, the question is, I'm not sure what all the implications are for supervision when it comes to trial. What's supposed to be supervised? When are you supposed to see it? What symptoms are to be checked? I, I think the question that he raises is a good one, which Most states is we should define supervision in some tangible way uh, so that the patient does get this input when they need it. Most states have no regulations with regards to what is supervision, not only for nurse practitioners, but for PAs as well. Some states uh, are don't define it at all. They leave it up to the to the uh, uh, clinicians, and in fact, that's what the PAs and MPs, to the extent that they have to have supervision, they basically want it to be determined practice by practice by practice. Comments, Mike. You know, almost with an experienced NP or PA, my experience is that they do an absolutely fantastic job, and just like any of us would collaborate with either a peer or with a specialist, you know, there's going to be times that they would need to collaborate too. It's funny when they say, you know, supervising it almost to me seems like it's, you know, the opportunity to discuss cases. That's what the physician is really providing a role. Cause if they're not on site, we all know that almost never happens. Right. right. So um, exactly. yeah, if I'm available to talk on the phone, to the NP or PA, and I'm not talking about a new grad, but someone who has tons of experience and they don't know what to, to, to happen. I mean, I guess, you know, there are without a doubt times that I could help them on the phone, but um, I, I think that people are just looking at healthcare in America saying, we need more providers and these folks do a really good job. Yep. Yeah, the, the terminology has kind of been transitioning from supervision to collaboration, uh, acknowledging, uh, you know, th that, we, it's a, a more collegial um, environment between us. All right, gentlemen, how's our time? Time for wine. We need a quick wine, man. All right. <laughs> um, I hate when he short shrifts wine of the month. You understand yes. that. <laughs> but the wine this month is uh, a Bonobo Winery. And does anybody know where that's located? Quick, no. quick. No, Michigan. No. It's oh. Michigan. <laughs> oh, it's Michigan. the one winery in Michigan. Nah, I heard about it. Yeah. Uh, there are 145 wineries in Michigan, the third most wine producing state in America. And wow. because of our climate, which is very much like the Finger Lakes region of New York and very much like Germany, uh, we're white wine people much more than we are red wine people in the production. Uh, they have a Chardonnay 
Banana Winery Chardonnay 2016. Now, Carter Osterling uh, of the uh, uh, Learning Channel's Trading Spaces, is he and his brother are the owners of this winery. Had to taste it, uh, you know, not looking for a lot. It's actually excellent. It's under $20 a bottle, which will make all of you cheapskates out there very happy. Under 20 bucks, great taste. It's a summer wine. And, you know, do, do we make great Cabernet Sauvignons here in Michigan? No, but the Chardonnays are perfect. I would advise you to try it. The only question is, is it a Costco? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Rick, I have no idea whether Costco has cut the deal. We've spoken on this several times, Mike. The fact that uh, Costco and Walmart, all these people are are making big contracts. Uh, that's where wine's going to be sold in bulk in America from now on. Yeah, I just not, see a, not, yeah. at your, not at your wine shop. I just saw an article on Wal, uh, Walmart and uh, wine. Yeah, it's going to be big battle between the two. Hey, listen, yep. Mike, we really appreciate your doing these cases with us. We always enjoy it. The, the, the level of detail that we get down to when we do these cases with you is, is substantially beyond what we normally do and presents a great opportunity to get into the nitty-gritty of, of what you would do, what the problems are, uh, and I really appreciate your doing this with us. And listen, can we do this a little bit more often? Absolutely. I'd love to. I'd be honored to. Um, I look forward to this. And I mean, talking with, you know, two of the greats in emergency medicine, and I'm not, you know, just saying that, I mean, we're bouncing stuff back and forth and I'm thinking of new stuff. And uh, yeah, I'd love to do it. I'd love to be back again soon. All right. All right. That is uh, September 2018. I'm having trouble with this year, you know. Yeah, yes. Uh, Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.